The date is October 28, 1864. It is just after midnight, and darkness dominates the Roanoke River upon which you sail. Your vessel, a 30-foot-long, steam-powered launch ship named Picket Boat No. 1, ideal for quick navigation throughout rivers. You are not alone in this venture, though, as 13 fellow crewmen accompany you in the launch boat. Additionally, seven more crewmen are being towed behind your vessel in a small cutter ship. Leading this covert mission is Lieutenant William Barker Cushing of the U.S. Navy. You and your fellow crewmen have heard stories about this young seaman, with some of the perilous exploits of Cushing's past instilling both confidence and uncertainty amidst the crew. Nevertheless, if there were one individual with a resume fit for this type of mission, it would be Lieutenant William Cushing. Your objective is the neutralization of the CSS Albemarle, an infernal Confederate ironclad that has been wreaking havoc on the Federal North Atlantic Blockading Squadron around North Carolina. Thankfully, the ironclad's destruction has ceased for the time being, as the Rebel Ram has remained docked in Plymouth, North Carolina, for repairs. This has made her a particularly vulnerable target. While the young lieutenant has expressed hopes that the Albemarle could indeed be captured and delivered to the Union, he has alerted the crew that plans may change to destroy the enemy ship. To accomplish this alternate objective, Lieutenant Cushing secured a 14-foot-long spar torpedo to the side of your ship in the hopes of blowing a hole through the Confederate ironclad. A job easier said than done. Suddenly, cutting through the silence of the early morning, you hear Lieutenant Cushing direct the crew's attention forward. Although darkness still blankets the area, you can start to make out the shape of a docked ship that must be it, the Albemarle. Not a sound has been heard of the enemy, and spirits are high that you may actually be able to capture this iron menace unscathed. However, all hopes of slipping away unseen are shattered when you hear a Confederate sentry cry out in alarm. The rebels then light a massive bonfire, illuminating the area and exposing your entire operation. This is it. That wretched ship must now be sunk. In an effort to frighten the enemy away from the Albemarle, you hear Cushing cry out, Leave the ram, or I'll blow you to pieces! Unsurprisingly, this seems to further anger the Confederates, and they begin to unleash a hail of lead upon you and the other crewmen. Not even the young lieutenant is spared from this shower of gunfire, as an enemy bullet graces his hand and no less than four shots perforate his jacket. Even through this maelstrom of gunfire, though, you and the crew continue towards the Albemarle. As your launch boat steams towards the Rebel Ironclad, Cushing yells out orders to turn back. Surrounding an Albemarle is a log boom, or groups of floating logs that are meant to deter close-range attacks such as yours. Despite this obstacle, though, Cushing sees an opportunity. If your small boat is able to gain enough speed, it could potentially travel across the logs due to the thick layer of algae that covers them. Your crew has come all this way to meet the enemy, so it is now or never. Cushing orders the ship to circle around the area so that she may build up speed. Once your ship has built up enough steam, Cushing orders you and the crew to once again direct the launch ship towards the Albemarle. By this time, however, you notice that the rebel soldiers have boarded the ironclad and started preparing the cannon for an attack. Fear sweeps through your body over the idea of being blown out of the water by the Albemarle's guns. Cushing, however, is undeterred and barks out orders to continue course. Your picket boat makes contact with the log boom, yet the slick surfaces of the logs enable relatively easy travel across it. 
Steady boys, Cushing yells. That infernal ram won't be afloat much longer. Just as your ship comes within feet of the Albemarle, you can see the daring lieutenant plant himself on the bow of the launch ship and take control of the explosive. Cushing directs the spar torpedo underneath the waterline of the ironclad, where the ship is unarmored and therefore most vulnerable. Cushing orders you and the crew to reverse course so that he can detonate the torpedo via the trigger lanyard. However, as your daring little vessel does so, the Albemarle presents forth its cannon. It is a scene that could only be described as apocalyptic. Rebel gunfire still showers you from the shore. Smoke from your ship and the Confederate bonfire cloud the sky and shouting permeates the environment around you. Through this sensory overload, you once again see Cushing assume his position at the bow of your ship. He grabs the trigger lanyard and pulls. In a moment where time seems to have slowed to a crawl, you witness both the torpedo's detonation and the firing of the Albemarle's cannon. The torpedo explosion blasts through the underside of the ironclad, causing the once-feared ship to sink rapidly beneath the water. However, in an act simultaneous to the torpedo's detonation, the ironclad's cannon shot blasts through your launch ship, throwing all of the crewmen overboard into the cold waters of the Roanoke River. Through all of the chaos, you are successfully able to swim to shore and evade capture by the Confederates. Once at shore, you take to the woods in an effort to hide from the Confederate soldiers. Everything is a blur, but you are conscious enough to realize that you made it out unscathed. As you make your way back to the safety of the Union line, you begin to wonder if this daring mission was even successful, as you never took the time to see whether or not the Albemarle had been properly destroyed. Likewise, you begin to wonder just how many fellow crewmen were lucky enough to escape with their lives after that massive explosion. What of the young Lieutenant Cushing? Was he as fortunate as yourself? Your name is Edward Hofton, seaman aboard Lieutenant William B. Cushing's picket boat number one, and you just took part in one of the most audacious military operations of the entire American Civil War. Welcome, everybody, to the Days of Your Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Joe, and I am joined today by a very special guest, my good friend, Dustin. Dustin and I met uh, my freshman year in college as a history major in a Battle of Gettysburg class, no less, so uh, instantly we, we clicked pretty quick. But uh, just to introduce Dustin, I'm going to ask him a few questions. So, uh, Dustin, why don't you say hello, first well, and foremost? Hello, everyone. Good to be here. This has been a, an episode in the making for... I'd say at least two years now. Most definitely a very long time. <laughs> White men and their podcasts. <laughs> so uh, just tell us a little bit about your background in this field. Yeah, so I too went to Penn State Altoona for my undergrad. I was in history. Um, I didn't really have a focus then. It was just kind of more like general American history. So I guess you could call that the focus instead of, um, you know, European um East Asian history, whatnot. So right. I, I've always had a focus since uh, I started college with um, with American history. Um, graduated uh, in 2020, so that was a fun experience. Uh, <laughs> virtual walking down the uh, to get my 
to get my uh, diploma. That mm-hmm. was that was not fun. Um, yeah, and then I started at Penn State Harrisburg in the American Studies program, and I've really honed in my focus to uh, naval history, more specifically naval history in the 19th century, and of course. Uh, naval history of the Civil War. And how did you come to be interested in something like naval history of the Civil War? How was how was that? You know, born? I really there's a couple factors. I think um, I like to think because my grandfather was in the Navy and he used to tell me all these stories from you know days of the past about his exploits in the Navy. Um, so maybe that was a factor. But then also, I. Ever since I was young, I, I did this like proto research on Wikipedia, and I think that's what planted the seed of interest mm-hmm. in my head for an interest in history. Um, and I really locked onto a lot of the naval engineering of mm. the Civil War. I just love this like this this like dawn of you know naval technology in the Civil War. It's it was I kind of had an interest in like steampunk technology and whatnot. <laughs> yeah. So. Some of the some of the you know weapons and uh, machines looked like on that cusp of modernity, but of course they were all powered by steam still. So um, I just really took an interest into the engineering side of the Civil War, mm-hmm. and then of course I just built upon that by um, gradually getting an interest in the actual history of the Civil War, um, and then as I said more specifically the Navy. So I think that's why. I've become so interested in naval history. Hmm, great. Which brings us to the topic of the episode. So why don't you, I'm going to make you do all the work. Why don't you introduce that? Right. <laughs> so on this long overdue collaboration episode of Days of Yore, Joe and I will be talking about the incredible event surrounding the sinking of the CSS Albemarle Ironclad. So where are we at here in terms of ironclad combat in the Civil War? Well, by 1864, The conflict has seen both the Union and the Confederacy utilize quite an extensive number of ironclad vessels across various naval engagements. So some of the ones we have, first and foremost, there was the CSS Manassas that emerged as the first ironclad to partake in combat in October of 1861. And this occurred at the Battle of the Head of Passes. Hmm. Now, owing to its its, uh, emergence as the first ironclad, there's a lot of problems with this unique <laughs> vessel. Um, first, it, it looked unique from most of the other Confederate ironclads because it literally just looked like a turtle shell that was <laughs> you know, plopped in the water, had a single cannon, so you had to rotate the entire ship to fire the cannon, which is not good when you're kind of restricted to rivers right. and smaller uh, bodies of water. Not entirely effective. <laughs> no, and neither was its armor that was only, I believe, it was less than two inches. So that was, yeah, very much. very minimal armor. But nonetheless, um, just because it was the first ironclad, it shocked the Union fleet. Mm. And um, yeah, in their initial encounter, they, they were terrified of this this confederate iron beast so next there were the union city class ironclads and these were out west and they you know they backed up a lot of uh uh, ulysses grant's early campaigns out there Hmm. um some of the first ones to emerge were the uss carondelet the uss essex and the uss cairo which is in fact the only surviving ironclad of its class 
and can be found at Vicksburg National Military Park in Mississippi. Really? Yeah. How about that? That's yeah. always cool. I suppose, uh, that's one cool thing about a lot of Civil War naval history is it can be pretty easily preserved. I, I think if, you, if it survives, there's a few places where you can really see something like that. It's mm -hmm. pretty cool. And I believe that my research, um, as soon as they retrieved it and raised it, a lot of the... A lot of the woods started warping, so they mm -hmm. kind of had to go through this rapid preservation process. And now it's the wood is incredibly warped, I believe, from the pictures I've seen. Mm -hmm. And I think I believe that they put um, just like kind of representative iron armor along the sides to kind of give you a picture of what the silhouette at least may have looked like. But right. it's not the entire ship, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, we don't have any like surviving entire. Uh, Union ironclads whatsoever. Shame, yeah. So these vessels participated in the Union's successful capture of Forts Henry and Donelson in February of 1862. Uh, but however, like the Manassas before it, these ironclads had insufficient armor, uh, thus resulting in these vessels becoming vulnerable to cannon fire from the Confederate shore batteries. So just they were effective in the sense that they were floating armored batteries. Mm -hmm. Um, but at the same time, they, the armor was just not sufficient at this point of the war. Um, and then moving on, one can of course not overlook the most notable engagement of ironclads during the Civil War, which was the Battle of Hampton Roads. It was here on March 9th, 1862, that the USS Monitor would battle the CSS Virginia to a draw. Uh, and... Although neither of these ships proved their dominance over the other, the Monitor's performance during the battle did lead to the Union Navy producing do dozens of similar ships afterwards. Mm. Um, but unfortunately, neither of these historic ships would survive the Civil War. Of course, the Monitor's turret would be raised, and it is preserved at the Mariner's Museum. Yeah, I had the chance to see it when I was a little younger, but uh, I think there's a cultural impact for the Monitor. I think it you see a lot of stuff that's based on the monitor post-war, some like stoves and decorations and mm -hmm. there's ironclad salt shakers. So it's it certainly stands out among the rest. It really does. It, it had that big of an impact just because of how unique it unique looking it was. How um, I'm not gonna say revolutionary the concept because there were several ships built in uh, I believe Great Britain beforehand mm -hmm. that had revolving turrets being experimented with, but um, th just the battle itself kind of, it, it showcased to the world that, you know, these, these ironclad ships were the future, mm -hmm. you know, not everyone was, was taken aback by saying like, oh my God, the, the Americans have ironclads because <laughs> yeah. I mean, several European nations have been experimenting with, uh, ironclad ships beforehand. But as I said, it proved that they are the future. It proved their effectiveness. Uh, so then, in the summer of 1862, we have the ironclad CSS Arkansas, which made a bold run through the Yazoo and Mississippi rivers to reach Vicksburg, Mississippi. And to achieve this, the Arkansas successfully fought its way through the entire federal fleet that had been occupying the Mississippi River. Hmm. A, a grand venture indeed, I'd say. I'd say, yeah. Um, and then of particular significance to me is the Battle of Wausau Sound that occurred on June 17, 1863. I've become incredibly interested in this battle, and I've considered it as the Union's retribution for the Monitor's ineffectiveness at Hampton mm. Roads. So at Wausau Sound, the USS Weehawken, which was an improved version of the Monitor from the Passaic class, 
it, it absolutely it absolutely demolished the CSS Atlanta, which was essentially uh, it looks similar to the CSS Virginia in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And I believe I've I've heard I've seen several scholars say that it was one of the better Confederate ironclads. So it wasn't like the Weehawken was taking on a an inferior version of the Virginia. Mm-hmm. You know, this was this was to be the battle that the Union wanted at Hampton Roads. But, right. of course, um, through various deficiencies with the cannon at Hampton Roads, the Monitor was able to pierce a Virginia. However, the Weehawken had a 15-inch Dahlgren shell gun, which was a sized-up and improved version of the cannon that the, that the Monitor had. And it just it just tore to shreds the, the, uh, the, um, the Atlanta. Mm. So, I mean, it... it Blew off the the pilot house of the Atlanta. Oh, wow. It pierced the armor of it. It it broke the the thick wood log backing of it. So mm-hmm. it just it just crushed the Atlanta. That's fascinating. Yeah, and I actually plan to focus on this engagement for my thesis project oh. either by going at an angle of you know how the fifteen inch Dahlgren became this sort of kryptonite to Confederate ironclads, mm-hmm. or just by examining the battle as a whole. Um, so I got to kind of refine the concept, but yeah, I'm planning to focus on that. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. So uh, keep y'all updated on the progress <laughs> of that. But this settles us neatly then into the construction of the CSS Albemarle. Yes, it does. And the story of the CSS Albemarle really starts in February of 1862, which saw the beginning of the Union's capture of several key cities across eastern North Carolina. These would include Plymouth and Washington County, Beaufort and Carteret County, Washington, not D.C., of course, and Beaufort County, and Elizabeth City and Pasquotank County. I always got to love those, those Good names. pronunciation there. Thank you. I was <laughs> really uh, scared to say that. Um, these cities occupied a valuable region for the Confederacy as they were established upon incredibly fertile land. And this land was key to satisfying much of the South's agricultural needs. And, of course, uh, you hear about, like, the Shenandoah Valley, the, bre- the breadbasket of the Confederacy is a little too contested to sort of provide that. So this area in itself is is kind of key to Confederate survival and victory. Uh, But by early 1863, the Confederacy sought to take back this valuable area by really any means available. Thus entering uh, Gilbert Elliott, who was a 19-year-old boat builder who had little to no professional education in this field. He sent plans to the Confederate Secretary of the Navy uh, by the name of Stephen Russell Mallory that proposed building a series of ironclads to take back this North Carolinian region. Unlike previous ironclads, though, these would be built in remote makeshift quote-unquote shipyards that would be too difficult for the Union Navy to get to. In fact, a mere cornfield owned by one Peter Smith would be chosen for the Albemarle's construction. For his participation, Smith was made the overseer of the construction, and he was able to both hire white carpenters and force black slaves to work on the Albemarle. Due to the less-than-desirable conditions in which it was being built, it took over a year for the ironclad to be completed, with work beginning in early 1863 and the ship finally being commissioned on April 17, 1864. Now, a little anecdote that I quite liked was that the captain to be named the shi- uh, named captain of the ship rather was James Cook, who was called uh, shortly after this the Ironmonger Captain because <laughs> he traveled all about uh, all about North Carolina to collect iron and which was sent up to Tredegar Ironworks in Richmond uh, no less and turn into these iron armor plates I think there was they made two inch plates and they stacked them to make a like a four inch mm-hmm. sort of armor so I, be, I believe it was what several hundred tons that he was able to collect very yeah that's that's what I recall hearing in, in that great video by the way is a resource we'll put it in the show notes but some final specifications of the album Marl upon completion 
It was 158 feet long, a beam or total width of about 35 and a half feet, a shallow nine foot draft that allowed it to operate in shallow waters, a speed of about four knots or a little over four and a half miles per hour, sloped armor with a thickness of four inches, a heavily reinforced built-in ram at the ship's bow. Of course, this was because um, was it the CSS Virginia's ram, right? Mm -hmm. it, it broke off when it was trying to ram Cumberland? I think it's the yes. Cumberland. Yes. There we go. I can't That's read my own handwriting. <laughs> Oh my god, I, I am ashamed that I didn't know that, damn it. <laughs> where, 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 anyways, yeah, okay, so heavily reinforced built-in ram with the ship's bow, a two, or two 6.4 inch Brook rifles that could be pivoted to fire out of any of the ship's six gun ports. These cannons were capable of firing both explosive shells, highly effective against wooden ships, solid armor piercing bolts, cylindrical cannon rounds, canister shot, and as well grape shot. With the Confederacy's hope for taking back their North Carolinian prize completed, it was now time to test the Albemarle strength and uh, let it sink in that it was built in a cornfield. What, what more Confederate, uh, <laughs> Confederate thing could happen building an ironclad in a cornfield? That, is, that screams Rebel Yell right there. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it, not only that, but just the age. Like, we, we, we hear a lot of these young leading figures in, in past conflicts in American history. But, I mean, you and I, who are in, well, I guess, oh my god, I'm in my mid-twenties now. Yeah. Ew! <laughs> but, you know, mid-twenties, early-twenties, I can't imagine taking charge like that right. and saying, you know, I'm going to oversee the development and construction of an entire ship right. in a freaking cornfield. Especially since he had, like, n little to no experience in the field and built the engines himself, I'm pretty sure, right? He built the engines himself? I'm not too sure, but yeah, just... Overall, the the control he had over this was yeah. was insane. It's incredible, yeah. it's impressive. I got I give him that. <laughs> I'll give him nothing else. Exactly, <laughs> filthy traitors, <laughs> a lot of them. So there were really two main series of engagements that the Al Albemarle then took part in. These were, of course, against the Union Navy presence across eastern North Carolina. The first engagement occurred just two days after the Albemarle's commission date. On April 19, 1864, the CSS Albemarle, under the command of James Wallace Cook, made its way towards Plymouth, North Carolina to attack the Federal forces. This was to initially be a combined operation between the Confederate Navy and the Confederate Army forces under Brigadier General Robert F. Hoke. However, due to mechanical difficulties on the Albemarle, which... <laughs> Let's be honest, Confederate ironclads uh, <laughs> don't have the best reputation for uh, <coughs> quality engines here. There we go. Um, the Albemarle was unable to assist in the land assault that took place the previous day. And as a result, the new ironclad was on its own. Hmm. Despite its unproven abilities, the Albemarle did understandably quite well against the Union presence around Plymouth. Um, just, I'm amazed by the... the uh, the surprise attacks that the Confederates were able to accomplish mm. with these, like, several hundred foot long vessels, like, <laughs> around every corner of the Civil War, uh, of Civil War naval history, you see just Confederate ironclads just, you know, emerging seemingly out of nowhere and surprising <laughs> the Union fleet and just, you know, demolishing them at first, and then, of course, there's a Union response, and et cetera, mm. et cetera, but just these, I find it funny just how many of these surprise attacks that they were able to accomplish with ironclads. So, artillery from Union fortifications, such as Fort Gray, had absolutely no impact upon the rebel vessel's armor, with its creator Gilbert Elliott boasting that, to those on board, the noise made by the shot and shell as they struck the boat sounded no louder than pebbles thrown at an empty barrel. Freaking okay. mic drop right okay, there. Okay, Jesus. Elliott. 
How does your head fit through the door there? <laughs> yeah, oh, George. I said George Elliott. His name's Gilbert Elliott. I don't, I don't care. You're a Confederate. <laughs> I don't like it. Gilbert Elliott is the name. And then the album was presented with a challenge of the USS Miami and the USS Southfield. And here the album proved equally effective. The Ironclad first dealt with the Southfield by ramming the Union vessel. However, this action almost caused both ships to sink as the Albemarle's ram became stuck within the hull of the Southfield. Perfect. Which was, <laughs> which is actually similar to what happened with the Virginia, mm-hmm. um, and I believe it was the why is like Cumberland. Remember? Cumberland. My goodness. Um, I believe when it ran the Cumberland, the same thing almost happened, but there mm-hmm. the ram broke off. Here, because the ram was integrated into the entire body of the Albemarle. It couldn't break off. I mean, it was reinforced with iron. So this thing, you know, it was stuck firmly in the Southfield. Mm. If the Southfield was going down, that Rebel Ram was going down with it. <laughs> Nonetheless, the uh, the Albemarle was able to break free. The Albemarle then targeted the Miami, who got ever closer to the Infernal Ram in order to try and board her. However, while inching closer to the shaken Albemarle, the Miami fired upon the Confederate ship. And this proved to be a costly mistake, though, because in a scene that is straight from the Looney Tunes, (laughs) um, the Miami's shell ricocheted off the Albemarle's sloped armor, landed back onto the deck of the Miami, and then exploded. Gosh. Oh, that's terrible. I mean, these Confederate ironclads, just in a lot of cases, just make the Union look like absolute fools. Yeah. So, with her commander killed in the accidental explosion, the Miami then retreated, leaving the Albemarle victorious. The next morning, the Albemarle connected with Robert Hoke's forces and successfully pounded the Union defenders of Plymouth into submission. The second engagement of the Albemarle took place on May 5th, 1864 at, of course, the Battle of Albemarle Sound which is the namesake, of course, of the Albemarle. Is it? Uh, you n- would never crazy. guess. You I would know. Think you never thought of it. And never put that together. <laughs> never. And this was a Confederate effort to try and take New Bern, North Carolina, by steaming down the Roanoke River and taking on the entire Union fleet. So the Albemarle would face here a much more substantial U.S. presence at the battle. With the Union presence, including the flagship USS Mattabesset, the USS Sassacus, and the repaired USS Miami. Back for round two. Back for round two. Re- revenge missions. <laughs> uh, your own shell may have blown up on your deck, but <laughs> God damn it, you're ready. To, you're ready to go again. Back swinging. Keeps on ticking. Those Floridians, even though it probably wasn't from Florida. <laughs> Not at all. Nope. <laughs> Just from like Ohio. Is it named after like Miami River in Ohio? Maybe I don't know. <sighs> who, who knows? Actually, a lot of people know. Yeah, it's not us. <laughs> Not at the moment here. So despite reinforcement coming from the CSS bombshell and the CSS cotton plant, the Albemarle was able to inflict the most damage due to her armor and overwhelming firepower. The Mattabesset suffered first, with her wooden hull being pockmarked by the Albemarle's cannon fire. Next, after ramming and nearly turning the Confederate ironclad on its side, the Sassacus had its engine boiler pierced by a shot from the Albemarle. We see this in a lot of other cases in the Civil War. This is one of the most dangerous things to happen because this caused steam from the engine boiler to spray throughout the entire throughout the entire war, uh, the ship of the Sassacus. Jeez. Yeah, and, you know, men were getting just scolded with this boiling hot steam. God. It, it's, it's a terrible, terrible. fate. Yeah. yeah. 
And of course, this prompted the Sassigans to disengage from the Albemarle and retreat. Last, and I can't say not least because, you know, this Miami just the poor thing. <laughs> um, the Miami took its turn at the Albemarle again. So after taking notes on its first engagement with the Albemarle, uh, the Miami had been given a spar torpedo and a sign net. I believe that's how you say it. Um, and this net was to be thrown over the Albemarle's propellers in order to jam them. Upon closing in on the Ironclad to try and use its spar torpedo, uh, once again, the Miami was met with the Albemarle's wrath and perforated with cannon shot. <laughs> uh, the Federal vessel soon retreated soon afterwards. Although the Confederate Ironclad had prevailed yet again, it did not emerge unscathed due to the sheer amount of fire it took from the mm. Union ships, just because of how many there physically were there. Uh, so some of the iron armor had been cracked, dented, or nearly stripped away. One of the ship's two cannon had nearly two feet of its barrel shot off by <laughs> another by Union cannon fire. Nonetheless, you know, because why not? It's a Confederacy. Um, there you go. They kept using the cannon throughout the day. Hey, there we go. Um, Revise, adapt. Can't time. say anything as terrible as having your own shell ricochet back and explode <laughs> on your deck happen. Yeah, that's a pretty bad they, one. They, they survived without two feet of one of the cannons. And then the ship's speed had been greatly reduced due to the damaged steering controls and a horribly scarred smokestack, which had been shot through so many times by Union cannon fire. As a result of the battle damage it sustained, the CSS Albemarle was docked in Plymouth, North Carolina, for repairs. And it was here, docked in Plymouth, where the Confederate ironclad would be ultimately be sunk by a bold Union plan. Despite the Albemarle being out of commission for months, the Union was terrified of the ironclad's performance thus far. All of the Federal fleet that met the Albemarle were defeated, and no ironclad the Union had on the East Coast could maneuver in the river conditions that the Albemarle could. As a result, the Union Navy began looking for alternative ways to either destroy or capture the dreaded Rebel Ram, with Rear Admiral David Dixon Porter taking charge of the operation. One rather peculiar individual from the Union Navy answered the call to destroy the Confederate ironclad. That individual's name, William Barker Cushing, Lieutenant in the U.S. Navy. The 21-year-old lieutenant's background was an exact fit for the type of Navy SEAL-esque mission he hoped to accomplish. Expelled from the U.S. Naval Academy for less than stellar academics and being a practical jokester, he proved himself as a courageous combatant at the Battle of Hampton Roads. The battle no doubt inspired him to think of ways in which to easily dispose of rebel ironclads. He tried to conduct a covert operation to capture Confederate Brigadier General Paul Herbert in 1863. What a what a guy! I know. That, just I, that kind of came out of nowhere. That's crazy. In May of 1864, he volunteered to try and sink the ironclad CSS North Carolina while it was challenging the Union blockade on the Cape Fear River near Wilmington, North Carolina. And he deeply sought revenge for the death of his friend, Lieutenant William Flusser of the USS Miami, who had been killed when the ship's cannon shell ricocheted off the Albemarle and exploded. I don't mean to laugh, but that's that's kind of funny. You, you have to. It's, it's been little, enough time. <laughs> yeah, it's been a, it's been a, a few hundred. Uh, well, not a few hundred years. Hundred and sixty plus years. When that's been when that's been adapted into various cartoons, I think we have to yeah. laugh. Yeah, it's got it's got to be. Lieutenant Cushing presented two plans to the Union command. His first proposal was to utilize inflatable boats for transporting a hundred man boarding party to the Albemarle and then capture her. However, his second and more plausible plan was to obtain two 30-foot-long picket boats from New York, hook up one spar torpedo to each vessel, sail down to where the Albemarle was docked in Plymouth, North Carolina, and either steal or sink the rebel ironclad. Seeing Cushing's confidence in how no better plans had been submitted, Rear Admirals David Dixon Porter and Samuel P. Lee agreed to back this dangerous gamble. Just a quick point I'd like to make here is that 
This is not the first time where we see spar torpedoes being utilized against ironclads in the Civil War. So the, one of the first times we see it is at the Battle of Wausau Sound on June 17, 1863. And it was here that the ironclad CSS Atlanta tried to use a spar torpedo against the USS Weehawken and the USS Nahant. A second time was when the semi-submersible torpedo boat CSS David used a spar torpedo against the USS New Ironsides on October 5th, 1863. Um, here, the spar torpedo detonated, but it just failed to sink the Union ironclad. And then, of course, we have um, the Albemarle, when it had an earlier brush with a spar torpedo, uh, when she fought against the USS Miami a second time. Yeah, and again, I'll say I find that really fascinating, because it is just, you were saying, like, we look at the Civil War like it's some kind of industrial war, or at least the first one, but it almost doesn't feel industrial to put a bomb on the end of a stick and then <laughs> put it on the front of your boat. That's just, it's one of the many technologies we see in the Civil War that's like right on the cusp of becoming something that we know nowadays, which is a self-propelled torpedo. But they just, they didn't have the technologies perfected back then to produce these on a mass scale. Right. Which results in these incredibly rudimentary devices where in layman's terms it essentially is just a bomb on the mm -hmm. end of a pole and speaking of supplies and utilities once all of his supplies had been collected cushing and his crew made their way down to albemarle sound north carolina unfortunately while sailing down picket boat number two lost course and ran aground in wacomico bay virginia resulting in her capture by Confederate forces stationed there. Although Cushing and his 14-man crew were concerned that the success of their mission now depended entirely on them, they remained vigilant and continued course. Cushing's picket boat number one arrived in the Albemarle Sound on October 24th, 1864. So this sets us right down into the night of October 27th going into the 28th. Um, and as we we said through our dramatic introduction uh, this was the night where Cushing and his crew would sink the Albemarle um, there was a, a, a pretty bad uh, I believe hail and rainstorm that occurred right beforehand and mm. the, the visibility was incredibly low for the crew but just after midnight uh, they were able to see the Albemarle just peeking through the darkness and you know hopes were high that they could you know get past this and get past the Confederate defenses and potentially capture the Albemarle um, unscathed mm -hmm. and then sail her back to the Union because they <laughs> knew once they were in that ship and had it started, there was there was no gun that the Confederacy had that could pierce its own ironclad armor. Right. That, at least that they had available there on, on, the, uh, on the dock site in Plymouth. Um, so, yeah, they, they had a... They were... They were pretty confident that they could do so, and they saw no Confederate scouts located in the area. Particularly, they were concerned about um, you know Confederate sentries mm -hmm. uh, that were hiding on the wreck of the USS Southfield, which the Albemarle had sunk sunk previously. Um, they were worried that you know sentries would be posted there hiding with. They they feared a I believe that a cannon was was put mm -hmm. upon the Southfield's wreck because it was just peeking out of the water enough where that could be that could be feasible. But when, just all hopes were dashed when you know they they heard the the bell the the alarm ring mm. that they had been spotted, and and so as we said at the beginning, you know once that alarm bell had rung, they tried to attack. They mm -hmm. they said, no longer are we going to be able to capture this live. We have to sink it. Right. And utilize these spar torpedoes. So they they made their way towards the Albemarle, 
But then, of course, they encountered the log boom. Cushing found that there was this thick layer of algae all across it. Mm -hmm. He said, you know what? If we gain enough speed, I could probably navigate this boat over these slimy logs (laughs) and then blow that ironclad that came to come. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they did it. I, I just, like, I would like to know the amount of time that transpired here, too, because a lot of the sources seemed to gloss over the amount of time that it took this this picket boat, which it, it's 30 feet. It's fairly mm-hmm. large. It's not like what we would think of like a speedboat nowadays. Yeah. So I, I'm just curious about like how long it took them to circle around and gain up enough steam so mm-hmm. that they could, you know, glide over these logs. Right. Not to mention, like, how close do you have to get in the middle of the night to see that they're covered in algae and be like, oh, we can go really fast and slide over mm-hmm. it. That's, That's what I'm incredible. like. Like, I wish they, there were like sources that gave a better like time, like, right. time span of when these events happened. Because, I mean, of course, you had the Confederate bonfire on the shore that, according to Cushing and the crew, just illuminated everything into this haunting scenery where it's you, know, you got the Albemarle all lit up and you know guns firing upon mm-hmm. them from all directions. Um, but yeah, it's like how much time did they have for him to like, or was he just that? he just that perceptive yeah. to quickly notice that hey there's algae like all over these logs I could probably skim across them mm-hmm. with this boat or was that just an assumption it was probably it, it, you know, who knows the water for I mean long, I would know? like to think that he was perceptive enough to yeah. see that there was just algae covering them um, but then it's like how much time because like I'm just thinking of, of boats back then they weren't too incredibly quick mm-hmm. for him to round about and then gain enough speed like I right. thought for sure like during that whole operation that he would have been blown out of the water at some right. point. But nonetheless, you know, he was successful in his efforts to gain up enough speed. They glided over the logs, plunged that spar torpedo home, and you know, blew up the Confederate ironclad. You love to see it. You love to see it. You love you to, love see, to see, see a dreaded ships. rebel ram sinking right. in the water, even though it was only a paltry six feet of water. <laughs> um, nonetheless, the the beast had been defeated. The beast had been sunk, and of mm-hmm. course... I love the note here. Cushing stripped off some of his clothing. I'm getting a little frisky. And, uh, and, uh, in order to swim better to the nearest shore after the destruction, uh, and once there, he, he hid some vegetation, like like anybody might, uh, in the middle of the night, freezing, and <laughs> after having just destroyed one of the most, I don't want to say despicable, that's not the right word, but... You know, it was despicable. It, it was, was despicable. a despicable ship. But uh, one of the most intimidating ships in the, in the Confederate force that... that had really been like hampering the Union's ability to further maneuver in the area, mm. like that. That's pretty impressive. And um, it just, just as I, as we said earlier, just it merely being docked there, mm-hmm. that per, that scared the Union right. from 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 taking any action in that region. Yeah. So the Confederacy had back this rich breadbasket right. once more, just because this ship existed. Yeah, and you painted a fantastic picture at the start when they kind of pulled up early, and this like layer of fog sort of shrouds the ship, but they can see it still. It's like it's very literary in a sense. It's like, <laughs> oh, geez, like that's very foreboding. I know it's like sh- it's straight out of like a, a fiction novel. It really is, like, and it reads happened. like a Call of Duty mission. Like, I got like <laughs> hiding in the vegetation, waiting for Confederates to pass. Like there's that mission in modern warfare, like all gillied up, where like the, the yeah. tank like rolls by you, and <laughs> you're like laying in the grass right next to it. That's, yeah, that's insane. I mean, he was just he was just chilling in the reeds for for some considerable time until they made their way past, and then once the Confederate soldiers had had 
long gone away, uh, he made his way through the swampy terrain towards an area some distance from the attack. And it was here, actually, that an African-American passerby alerted Cushing um, that his mission to sink the Albemarle had been a success. Mm. And then upon learning this, Cushing, who was still injured from the explosion of the ship, I mean, you literally took a, a blast from a cannon yeah. and were thrown into the water. <laughs> I'm sure, you know, as as hardy of an individual as he was mm-hmm. and as daring, you know, you, you're still just in shock from what happened. Right. So, despite all this, he managed to capture a Confederate skiff boat and paddle back to the safety of the Union fleet. And mind you, this took hours for mm-hmm. him to do. He, he was buff afterwards. He was ripped. He got he, on board like Schwarzenegger. <laughs> I just destroyed the Abelmal. <laughs> oh my bad hands. <laughs> Who are you? It's me, Cushing. <laughs> He's like shirtless, muscly, wet. The Chad. <laughs> Cushing the Chad. The Sigma male Cush. <laughs> Besides Cushing, of course, only one other Union uh, sailor was able to escape successfully. A number of credible sources list this crewman as Edward J. Houghton. However, a transcription of Cushing's report of the raid to Admiral Porter lists that the escaped man's name was William Hoffman. Whatever the case may be, given the extensive number of records we have for Edward Houghton's Medal of Honor recipients, it would seem that he was indeed the second Union sailor to escape. All of the crew were not so fortunate, though. Two of the picket boat number one's crew died following the ship's explosion, either from direct hits from the uh, Albemarle's grape shot from the cannon, or just... They could have simply drowned, who's to say? Um, And then, unfortunately, 11 other crewmen were captured by Confederate soldiers and taken to the notorious Confederate prison at Andersonville, Georgia. Which, Joe, I think you know a little bit more about Andersonville than I do. I I might, I might. uh, (laughs) I wouldn't say a little bit more. I'm sure we know about the same. But, yeah, Andersonville, not a nice place to be. Like you say, it's very notorious dare I say, even infamous uh, in the Union uh, in union, you know, parlance uh, that this place is basically hell on earth, right? There are thousands and thousands of soldiers stuffed into this little place and disease spreads, you know, lice is everywhere. They're emaciated. It's, I don't want to compare it to a concentration camp, but it's pretty damn close mm-hmm. uh, if that were to exist in the 1860s or the Civil War specifically. Um, the conditions are not great. Thousands and thousands of Union soldiers will die in captivity there. There is a mass grave nearby, which houses a few thousand just kind of in, you know, this mass plot. Um, So, yeah, not a great place to end up. Some people survive, like, years of captivity somehow. Mm -hmm. I mean, these guys didn't even have, like, a steady source of, like, drinking water. A lot of times they were, you know, drinking the same water that they were using uh, using to go to the bathroom in or to wash in. So, you know, parasites abound, diseases, infections, what have you. Uh, escapes were attempted, and I can't confidently say I know of any successful ones. But, yeah, uh, as far as places to end up as a Union prisoner, not a good one, yeah, that's for sure. Certainly not. Just through research, I do believe that while en route to this prison, uh, that several of these Union crewmen did escape. Oh, wow. Um I don't believe they were at the prison yet. I'm not. I'm not too sure. I can't comment mm-hmm. confidently on it. But um, I believe sources did say that some of them did escape uh, between the period of their capture and their transportation to Andersonville. Great. So, yeah, always good to hear. But I, it's unfortunate that all of them weren't mm-hmm. as lucky. 
Um, but to finish off here, on October 29th, the day after the Albemarle's destruction, the Union fleet sailed towards Plymouth, North Carolina, and flushed out all of the remaining Confederate defenders by October 31st. Upon the city's capture, the Union raised and repaired the Albemarle, but never truly utilized her to their own advantage during the war. And I believe afterwards, uh, the, the vessel would be that would be decommissioned and sold in 1867. Mm. Um, so yeah, they had they had this valuable and and feared Confederate ram at their disposal and just never utilized it afterwards. Oh, took the high road. They did. Yeah. That, well, they used it on us, but we're not going to use it on them. Yeah. How we're dare not. we use it? Especially what happened in Miami. You know, just yeah. Pour one out for the, yeah. the Miami. I take, mean, that, take a drink. that poor ship. That poor ship. That was, yeah, not a fun ship to be on. <laughs> the Navy's all fun in games until you're on the Miami. <laughs> <laughs> and your own shells explode on your deck. That's the that's the uh, that's the ship you go to when all else is failed. It's it like, is, oh, it where is. am I being? Uh, where am I being stationed? At? Oh, the Miami. Okay, uh, yeah, I'd uh, like to leave now. Maybe decommissioned already, or is it like a option I have? Or, <laughs> I mean, I heard this this crazy campaign going on. I'll go join that. I was, uh, Sherman, just please for the love of God, not the Miami. No, please, not the Miami. <laughs> but yeah, that is the that is the story of the Albemarle. Once again, just. Just not well known outside like diehard Civil War circles. Mm-hmm. I again I, to comment on it like I barely know knew about the story until you introduced it to me, and I think it's a testament to how fascinating the Civil War is, really, because mm-hmm. you can look into just about any of these um, engagements, big or small, and because they were fought by people, you know, everyone's got a story, and because literacy rates were so high, and it was encouraged to write in a journal or you know, to, to write your experience after the war, we have a really good understanding of a lot of these engagements, whether they be, you know, a little uh, puffed up after the war, you know, for a good memoir, you know, uh, or not. Um, but it's always fascinating to read, especially about something that is kind of on a smaller scale, but it has, like, a really big effect. And if not, just having a big effect, just on a smaller scale, it, you kind of can piece together this, like, moment-by-moment story like we have done sort of with with this event and become very intimately knowledgeable of it and kind of have an appreciation of the story more for that. So incredibly fascinating. Uh, they got to make a movie about this. And if not a movie, really then like a TV, like an HBO miniseries, that would be so cool. This one have been at home in the 90s on TNT, there you right go. alongside the, the uh, ironclad... Uh, television movie and then the one on the Hundley. There you go. I mean, but of course, I mean, now that we have better effects and budgets and whatnot that are being allocated to TV and indeed streaming movies. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. If, if anyone is interested in picking up a, uh, a historical story to adapt into a a film or series, this is, I think this should be at the top of the list. Yeah. I gotta get Spielberg on it. No doubt. Uh, Yeah. I I could, I could imagine if it was made in the nineties, a young Matthew Broderick, fresh off his glory streak, you know, (laughs) uh, playing Cushing. Cushing, Yeah. (laughs) I can see it. I can see it. Or maybe a, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal. Jake Gyllenhaal. Those those eyes, I think get kind of near Cushing's, (laughs) but yeah. So it's just a tale of, you know, human ingenuity, perseverance, courage, and one that defies the the notion that the Civil War was a, a static, archaic mm-hmm. conflict. You know, you're seeing these covert 
you know, behind enemy lines operations going right. on. It's a, it's a fascinating story, fascinating war. And if you'd like to hear more from Dustin and I, we will be continuing our conversation into the second part of this special, special episode after years of being away on my own fault. But uh, it would, there we'll be talking about uh, a little more about the Albemarle story and Cushing, uh, but as well how uh, history media is beneficial to the field and how you know something especially like podcasts are influencing influencing people and expanding the horizons of the history field. So stay tuned for that one. Thank you all for listening to this part of the special episode. Don't forget to listen to the next one. I'm your host, Joe, joined by Dustin. This is Days of Your History Podcast. Take care. We'll see you guys.